This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Tim Stenovec. And I'm Paul Sweeney, in for Carol Masser this week. Paul, another week of earnings reports behind us. And while the majority have been positive, there are some economic growth fears that have been emerging. We've also been hearing this week from a host of companies with guidance that has been disappointing and we've seen as a result their stock falling. Exactly right. I think there's concerns about the uh, next phase of the COVID-19 pandemic, the Delta variant. And I think it's all about the kids now. More than 70% of eligible U.S. recipients have had at least one vaccine dose. That's good news. But millions of children are preparing to return to classrooms across the country. And there's uncertainty over mask mandates and inoculation requirements for younger students particularly those kids under the age of 12. Yeah, we're also starting to see it play out with returns to office, with companies this week delaying September returns to office, and some saying, okay, we're going to wait and see, and some companies saying, okay, we'll we'll wait a month. So things are not really going according to plan. We're going to get into that both on the education and medical perspective. We're also going to pull back the curtain on Beijing's ongoing tech crackdown to understand why the Chinese government is coming down so hard on its innovators. We're also going to talk to Simbridge CEO Michael McGuire. This was a fun one. It's a digital asset exchange fund that's actually embracing cryptocurrency regulations and trying to get more of those institutional investors. All that's to come. We begin with the magazine's cover story. The new issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine, it is available on newsstands now and at Bloomberg.com slash Businessweek. The cover story, it's all about vaccine mandates for kids. Is it the next big back to school fight? Children have to get vaccinated for less urgent threats and it works. So why not with COVID? That's the big question. Joining us now is Joel Weber, editor at Bloomberg Businessweek. Riley Griffin is healthcare reporter for Bloomberg News. Joel, I want to start with you. I was really surprised to see the lack of vaccine uptake in kids who are ages 12 to 17. Uh, only 43% have received their first dose. Why is that? Yeah, there's definitely um, a sense of, of of apathy, and it has it's going to have some um, uh, serious uh, implications. I think um, in the next weeks and months, especially as we're dealing with this Delta surge, you know that apathy is it's sort of multifaceted, and and some of that we go into in, in the story. Um, the fact that kids haven't been quite as susceptible yet is to COVID is is I think one of the driving reasons. Um, there's also, I think, a, a feeling that the the vaccines currently have emergency youth author- authorization. So I think there's still some vaccine hesitancy ar- around it. Um, and we've seen, you know, other countries even take slightly different approaches to how um, kids are supposed to be vaccinated. So I think there, that all creates a little bit of a, a fog that has um, led to, to a slow adoption. And and I think where where Riley and Susie King King story goes here is an important one because as we're just seeing now with New York mandating vaccines for for restaurants, for instance, in the not so distant future, we could very easily see schools mandating vaccines. And one of the main questions that um, Riley, I'd like you to pose to you is, you know, look like kids get vaccinated for all sorts of things that are far less urgent than COVID. So could we? potentially see schools mandating COVID immunization? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a great question, and it's one that we've seen play out, and there's precedent for. 
I mean, educators are having a debate on their hands right now as to whether to implement mandates requiring COVID-19 vaccines as they routinely do for measles, polio, and other diseases, or to punt because of politics and let parents decide. This has really become so political, um, in part because of that emergency use authorization that you described. But once there's a full approval in place, I have no doubt that schools, um, at the request of states, are going to put similar requirements in place. Um, This is really just a part of the bedrock of our education system, and any parent listening knows that to be true. Um, And these mandates persist even though they've been so successful that the risk of contracting some of the illnesses they cover is almost non-existent. You know, one I like to put in perspective is that the last U.S. case of polio dates back to 1979, and yet all 50 states and the District of Columbia require Mm. kids to get vaccinated with a polio shot before going to school. Riley, you know, I fear that this is going to get really, really ugly and really personal and really localized. Do we have any evidence or do we have any precedent here for a COVID-19 requirement? Because we've got a lot of states, I'm thinking in the South and the West, they're going back to school. If they're, they're not already back, they're going back in the next week or two. Yeah. So what we have right now is a legal vacuum because we've never seen before a mandate put in place for an emergency use authorized vaccine. That's not to say states can't do it. They are just a little hesitant to wade out into those tumultuous waters. But let me take you back in history for a moment, because in 1905, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled to say that mandates are allowed, that states can require vaccination, and that individual liberties are not absolute, that the average person cannot say, hey, in the face of a public health pandemic, we are going to reject a vaccine mandate. And the first mandate actually for school kids goes back even further to 1855. So there's a great deal of precedent. Um, Schools themselves know that this could likely be coming. I've spoken with many administrators who said they're just waiting to get more parents on board. They want to bolster trust and confidence, especially while we still have that EUA status. That was U.S. health reporter Riley Griffin, also the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek, Joel Weber. Coming up, more on this important issue from someone on the front lines, Dr. Elizabeth Mead of Swedish Health Services in Seattle on the progress being made toward getting young children safely vaccinated against COVID. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevac and Paul Sweeney from Bloomberg Radio. Okay, it's all about, when you think about the narrative of this pandemic, how it's evolved, how it's had an arc since the beginning. I think now where we are in the narrative is the Delta variant and vaccinations, uh, getting people vaccinated, getting who vaccinated, how young, how old. Uh, It's now turning towards the very young as we think about getting back to school. And there's lots of discussions and arguments to be made on both sides. Dr. Elizabeth Mead joins us. She is medical director of pediatric quality and safety at the Swedish Health Services. Joining us on the phone from Seattle. Uh, Dr. Mead, thanks so much for joining us here. I guess, you know, lots of parts of the country are just about going back to school. I know California starts a week from Monday uh, here on the East Coast. It's, it's right after Labor Day. But the discussion is who should get vaccinated as we think about back to school? Should we be, should we be getting kids vaccinated and how young? 
You know, I think absolutely. What we recommend is that kids 12 and over who are eligible for the vaccine get the vaccine and get it soon. You know, the reality is that it takes several weeks between the couple of doses and then full immunity two weeks after that second dose. And so for many kids who haven't gotten the vaccine yet, we're already sort of talking about post going back to school dates for them to be fully, fully protected. The uh, cover of the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week, it's all about vaccine mandates for kids. And there's some pretty startling uh, statistic in here. Uh, the rollout of shots to millions of kids ages 12 to 17, um, although they account for 7.5% of the U.S. population, it's really lagged. Only 43% of that group has received their first dose. Uh, why is that, Dr. Mead? Why are we seeing this reluctance from parents to inoculate their kids when uh, we think about vaccines in the early parts of our lives? That's when we get the most vaccines. Yeah, that's right. You know, I think there are a couple of factors that play into that. And so one of those factors, I think, is that we know that older adults uh, tend to get sicker, right? And so we know that although kids can get very sick, can end up in the ICU, can die from COVID, can have long COVID and all those other complications that we think about, the rates of that happening in children and teens are significantly lower than in older adults. And so I think that for many people who are high risk, you know, they want to get the vaccine for themselves as soon as possible. And they may think differently about it when it comes to their kid. I think the other factor here is that we know it's hard to make a healthcare decision for yourself. And it's even harder to make it for someone else. And so people, I think, are, are feeling like they want to make sure they have all of their questions answered before they proceed with vaccines for their children. Dr. Mead, what do we know about uh, how young we can uh, we can give this vaccine to a person? How young can they be? You mentioned 12 and older. How about some of the younger kids? Yeah, so at this point, it's approved for 12 and over. We anticipate that it will be approved for younger children, probably down to age five, potentially down to age two by kind of early to mid-fall. And I know that a lot of parents are desperately waiting for those dates to get their younger children vaccinated. And the reality of this pandemic is that I think even for families where everyone who's eligible has had the vaccine, so everybody 12 and older and then the adults in the household, many of those families still have younger children who are not yet eligible. And so I think it's hard to sort of feel like we can get back to life as normal normal for our families when we still have one or more young children that yet aren't yet able to get the vaccine who are living in our houses. Doctor, back in May, Dr. Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease doctor, he said that by the first quarter of 2022, we're going to have, quote, enough information regarding safety and immunogenicity to be able to vaccinate children at any age. Do you agree with that timeline that in, in the first part of, of next year, we're going to be able to vaccinate uh, newborns? Yeah, I think that rings true for the most part. I mean, um, we know that there are ongoing trials down to age six months for multiple of the vaccines. And so we anticipate having quite a bit of safety data, even down to young infants. I, I would guess that it will be very similar to the flu shot. And so for the mm. flu shot, we start giving that at six months and older. So I'm not really convinced that we're going to be vaccinating newborns against COVID anytime soon. But I think those young infants kind of six months and older will certainly be in the next wave. What do we know about global. dosage? I was surprised when, when my son got his first flu shot that he got two of them separated a few months apart, whereas I only got one. And it was the, he got double yeah. dosage, basically. So for that first year, for any child who's seven or younger, for that first year, we recommend getting two doses a month apart to really kind of stimulate the immune system. Because for many vaccines, that first dose sort of primes you. And then that second dose is really what confers the full immunity. And after that, we consider that yearly dose sort of a booster. And so it may be the same with with COVID, you know, we're already talking about potentially having boosters for high-risk groups that have already received the two vaccine series. So I think it will be probably fairly similar to that. Dr. Mead, just quickly, do you think schools will 
mandate vaccinations? I don't see that happening personally until they have full FDA approval for the age groups that we're talking about. And so I think at that point, we can really have that discussion. But in my mind, it is unlikely to happen until we reach that milestone. And hopefully that will be in the next few months. Dr. Mead, we like talking to people who are in hospitals, uh, who are on the ground, who are talking to patients, who are working with patients just to get an update from the front lines. Are you seeing younger and younger patients in your hospital than at other points during the pandemic? We really are. You know, I'm I'm a hospital pediatrician, so I only work in the hospital, I see newborns up to 18 who are sick, who are hospitalized. And I will tell you that throughout the pandemic, although the rates are lower than in adults and especially older adults, we have seen young infants, kids and teens who are hospitalized, who are very ill with COVID, who are in the ICU, kids who are having long COVID symptoms. So although the rates are lower, I think it's really important to reinforce for people, this is still a disease that can cause really critical illness in newborns all the way through those those children and teenage years. So Dr. Mead, what are, when you do see these patients and you know, are, are most of them unvaccinated? And if so, what are some of the typical reasons that you're finding uh, in your hospital? You know, the majority of patients that are showing up to the hospital that are very sick, that are ending up in the ICU with the Delta variant in particular are unvaccinated. So we know that the vast majority of those patients have not received the vaccine. And I think that's such an important point because we know that although people who are vaccinated can transmit the Delta variant, they are vastly less likely to end up with severe symptoms in the hospital, in the ICU, or to die from COVID, right? So what we're seeing across the country is that it seems to be that skewing now to younger people who are not vaccinated. So teens and also young adults, people in their 20s and 30s who have not received the vaccine, who are ending up in the hospital and who are very, very, very sick from the Delta variant in particular. Dr. Mead, just in the last 30, 30, 40 seconds that we have, what do you tell parents who come to you concerned that their kids under 12 can't yet be vaccinated and they're concerned about them actually getting COVID? I have so many parents who have that concern who are just desperate for the vaccine to be approved for their younger children. We have a six-year-old in my house who's not yet eligible, who we can't wait until he's able to get the vaccine. And I think that's actually the majority of parents that I talk to is who are really saying, you know, the older kids are, are vaccinated or I'm vaccinated. I just can't wait until my younger kids can get this so that we can really feel like our whole bubble and our whole family is protected. And my great hope is that that will happen really within the next couple of months. That was Dr. Elizabeth Mead. She's the medical director of pediatric quality and safety at Swedish Health Services. She joined us from the Emerald City. Still ahead on Bloomberg Business Week, we'll shift gears and take a look at the housing market. And it is a great time to be a seller. Where the buyers are flocking and what it means for our major urban centers. Yeah, perhaps not a great time to be a buyer as prices just continue to go up. We're going to be speaking to Compass Real Estate founding agent Stephanie Malios. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevac and Paul Sweeney from Bloomberg Radio. So something that happened to me in my own world in the last year, Paul, has been uh, that several friends have left New York City Mm -hmm. and gone to the suburbs. Uh, One did it much sooner than the other. The other one, they both bought in White Plains, had the toughest time finding a place. They were getting outbid every weekend by people going all cash, uh, all young families who wanted to leave New York City and get more spaces. More and more people are working from home. Yeah, it's just extraordinary. We, uh, you know, we uh, just sold our our home in North Jersey, and it uh, sold uh, very quickly, and it just confirmed the 
really, really strong market out there for uh, residential. For sellers. Uh, yes, it's a great time to be a seller. Boy. <laughs> well, let's get right to it with Stephanie Malios, realtor and founding agent at Compass Real Estate in Short Hills, New Jersey. Stephanie, was that a fair characterization of the way that you're seeing the market right now in the suburbs? It absolutely is. That's exactly what we've been experiencing in this area. Uh, South Orange, Maplewood, Summit, Livingston, Chatham, all, all the counties, Essex, Morris, Union counties have all seen a tremendous um, amount of activity from people kind of accelerating their timeline on maybe they were going to move in three to five years and now they're moving right now. So, Stephanie, I want to get a sense of kind of some of the drivers here. My guess is it's some combination of, boy, historically low interest rates in the mortgage market, plus the pandemic and and, then the need for space and people rethinking working from home and all of that. So as you talk to your clients, what are you hearing as the primary driver? Well, for a lot of them, they've been working from home, but if they have kids, they've also been schooling from home. And that is really sort of untenable in a one or two bedroom apartment with two adult parents right. working from home and one or two kids schooling from home. It's just not possible. I mean, it's possible, but it's not fun. One of the challenges, though, that comes with such a hot market is the people who are selling need somewhere else to go. And I wonder when prices just get so high as they've continued to climb that people who do want to move somewhere else and already own, they are priced out of their own area because prices have gone up so much. That's absolutely happening here, but uh, there's been a huge growth of luxury apartment rentals built in the region, um, anywhere where you could sort of stick uh, 100 or 200 units in a little funny area, um, people are building them, and here they are, they're ready. So a um, number of people in certain generations that would never have considered renting because it's just sort of against the law to rent and pay somebody else's <laughs> mortgage. Um that mindset has changed quite a bit, especially when the tax laws change and you could no longer write off more than $10,000 of your property tax. And in this area... Don't remind me, please. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, me too. So they're like, you know, let's just take our money off the table. We'll just rent for a year or two. I was just with somebody who's scaling down from a $4 million house in Short Hills thinking they'll rent for a year and see what happens. And maybe they'll buy something smaller and renovate it, or maybe they'll relocate. They they don't know, but they like the fact that they can be liquid and, and act quick when they're ready. Stephanie, what do you think would or will derail this hot market? Well, interest rates going up doesn't help, but yeah. often that stimulates people to act because, oh. funny enough, as interest rates stay very low or when they're declining, everyone thinks they have all the time in the world to find something. And when they go back up, that's when they realize they missed the bottom and, uh uh-oh, they better scramble and get in. So sometimes having low interest rates doesn't spur activity, but in this time period with school about to start, anyone with children going into school this year, they want to make sure their kids are going to be in a seat. And that's not necessarily guaranteed in the suburbs, but I think a lot of people think there's a better likelihood that they'll be in a seat in a classroom with a live teacher in these kind of areas where schools have always been very highly prized and focused on. You mentioned a lot of areas that have been of interest to a lot of people for years. I'm wondering, are there areas now that people should be paying attention to if they get priced out of the summits and the the short hills? 
Well, a lot of those people are actually moving to Harding Township, which is also known as New Vernon, which has very low taxes and very big properties and uh, large homes because they realize that the need to be close to the commute is no longer as important to them. So they're more willing to go sort of a country route as opposed to the suburbs, whereas someone coming out of Brooklyn or Mm. uh, Jersey City, they might not be quite prepared for a 15-minute drive to civilization, like a supermarket. But for someone who's already lived here, they kind of get it. So if they really don't think they need that, they're willing to make that kind of a trade, and especially... You're seeing a lot of people who normally would be thinking about scaling down at this point or downsizing, we call it right-sizing, but they're thinking, you know, let's go to a bigger place where if our kids right out of college have to move back in with us again, there's room for them. That was Stephanie Malios. She's a founding agent at Compass Real Estate. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up next, we're going to talk to the have an e-commerce retailer that's pioneering art curation for the Instagram generation. A conversation with Art Sugar CEO Alex Greenberg. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevac and Paul Sweeney from Bloomberg Radio. Online art sales, I didn't really know it was a thing, but it really is. Online art sales doubled in value from 2019 to reach a high of $12.4 billion, and 71% of Americans plan to redecorate in 2021, so that a whole home art, home decor is a big market and it is growing. And I want to bring on Alex Greenberg. Alex is Chief Executive Officer of Art Sugar joins us on the phone from Nantucket, which I understand is very nice. It's not the Jersey Shore, of course, but it's very nice, <laughs> I understand. Alex, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Love for you to just start and say, what is Art Sugar? What do you guys do? Sure. Thanks so much for having me. Um, it's great to chat. Art Sugar is the curated e-commerce platform for exclusive eye-catching artwork and home decor objects. And with each purchase, we donate a portion of the proceeds to one of our pre-vetted charitable partners. Um, I come from the fine art world where it's a little intimidating. So I wanted to do something different. And this site is basically saying like arts for everyone. And we want to meet um, all our customer needs affordably and accessibly. Who's your target market here? Who's your like your typical buyer? Female. Um, maybe age 24 to 38, that's really our sweet spot, but we run the gamut, but I'd say our market is predominantly female. And what are some of the, okay, so is this for the folks who maybe, you know, they don't want to buy stuff that, you know, they could get in a big box retailer, but maybe they're also not going to walk into a Sotheby's? Right, exactly. It's sort of like bridges that from the big box sort of, not unique approach, sort of like the live, laugh, love that may not be trendier on the pulse. Um, and, you know, it's at an affordable price point in a way more affordable than something, you know, on the fine art end where, um, you know, our, our buyers aren't um, buying at that price point yet or don't want to, or maybe we'll graduate to that eventually. But this is really, if you want to decorate your home in a really cool way without breaking the bank. What is the average price point for you know a, a you know piece of art on on that that you would curate? Right now, our average order value is two hundred and twenty dollars. Um, 
people generally buy a few things when they shop. I'd say the average, though, price, the, the piece, maybe it's $150 um, on the site now. You know, it's amazing when I was just, I saw that uh, that data point about online art sales, $12.4 billion. Crazy. It's just extraordinary. You know, it just brought stepping back, not necessarily for the your business, but are people paying down big price points for fine art? Are they actually doing that online? I believe they are. We're not in, Art Sugar isn't um, catering to that market where people are spending, you know, $15,000 on a piece of art. It's really for, you know, um, a new art collector, a young art collector, or someone who just wants to elevate their home, you know, in um, affordably. I saw our sales during COVID um, grow 80%. Wow. So I think that just makes the people being home more, you know, willing to sort of, I don't think it's really a risk to buy online because these you know, pieces are definitely pre-approved, pre-vetted, but they want to, you know, uplift the space they're kind of stuck in. But also, you know, it makes you think like, oh, I really should be, you know, decorating my home. I haven't gotten to it yet. And now I'm finally can. Um, so I think that there is a lot of things at work right here. And Alex, do you and, and or your team, are you the ones that are picking out the pieces and curating them on, on your site? So it's, it's me. Um, I'm the founder, and it's actually just been me on my team um, since I actually made my first offer day after um, getting um, some investors last month. Um, but we have we work with celebrities and some influencers to curate collections on the site so that they're you know the collections are sort of pre-approved, and it makes for a really easy um, buying experience for our customers who. You know, maybe it's their first artwork purchase ever and, you know, they, you know, they don't know where to start and it, it sort of like helps the process move along. So, Alex, your e-commerce platform for home decor, uh, everyday art, I guess you would call it, um, needs capital. You just had a seed round. Tell us about that. Yes. Yes. So, um, as I mentioned, my business grew 80%. Uh, from March 2020, and it was just me, and all of a sudden, I mean, not overnight, but almost overnight, the business grew a ton, and I had always thought I would go for uh, capital, but I didn't know when I would be ready, and finally, I knew I was ready, so I spoke to um, a few VCs. I met the one that ended up investing through Instagram, which was a really on-brand way for both of us, because... 66% 66% of my revenue comes from my Instagram account, um, artsugar.co is the handle. And uh, this person who's an, an influencer was liking my photos, and I noticed her because she has like 90,000 followers. And then I saw she was an investor, and she loves art and color. And we direct message through Instagram, and I ended up pitching to her, and she was like, in. And we spoke for like nine months on the phone and over Zoom, and we closed our deal uh, the beginning of July. And so what are you, what are you going to use? This, what are you going to use this capital for? I'm going to use um, the capital for hiring someone. I actually just put my first offer out. So I'm really excited about that, and she accepted it. Um, and marketing a bit of a rebrand for the business and uh, customer more. Um, focus on customer service platform and customer service touch points, just like a 
better communication. It's really important to me that the customers are happy. So I, um, I'm investing in that too. And um, more collaborations with other businesses and artists. And then also focus on our on, on house, in-house designs and, um, um, and products. Interesting. So the, you know, this online kind of e-commerce driven home decor art uh, business, it's, it's a niche that I don't, you know, that I think you've identified uh, where folks maybe don't want to go to a big box retailer to find home decor, but then, right. and, and, and artwork for it to hang on the walls. But talk to us about how the, you said your business grew 80%. I'm sure a lot of that was driven by the fact that a lot of folks were saying, boy, I'm going to spend me spending a lot more time in my home, whether it's an apartment or a house. Right, exactly. And I better mm-hmm. spruce, you know, spruce this place up. Talk to us about how the <laughs> pandemic impacted your business. Yeah, the um, the pandemic obviously, unfortunately, forced everyone inside their homes. And I think that sometimes decorating is put on the back burner because people are really busy in their lives and it's not necessarily, you know, a focus or a priority. And all of a sudden it became one because you're kind of sitting in that space and um, you want to elevate your walls, but also maybe with uplifting product and design, which is what Art Sugar sells. You know, we have a very uplifting, happy aesthetic. And um, it sort of was the right time to right. kind of shop on shop on Art Sugar. And also during the pandemic, I think it was last March, actually, I just launched Home Decor. Before I hadn't done that, it was only wall art. So the decor also, you know, gave us a bit of an edge um, during pandemic. That's Art Sugar CEO Alex Greenberg. That wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Paul Sweeney. In for Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenevet. Coming up in our next hour, takeaways from SEC Chairman Gary Gensler's first extensive interview about the digital money craze. Our financial investigations team goes inside the federal government's plans for cryptocurrency regulation. When you look across the crypto universe right now, and taking Bitcoin out of that, there's all of these tokens that exist in the world. And a majority of those are securities. And because they're securities, that means that they fall under the SEC's remit. And that means that if they're out there and not registering and not trading with the SEC's rules, then they're potentially in violation um, of those rules. Meanwhile, one company that's betting big on crypto is actually hoping for more oversight. Michael McGuire, the CEO of Simbridge, a digital asset exchange for institutional investors. He explains why. I mean, we're all all for regulation and transparency. We want to improve on the way things are done. Uh, so I think that's, you know, that is needed. And that's why we've decided or, you know, we decided to set up in the U.S. in one of the strictest regulatory environments in the world and focus on accredited investors and institutional investors that demand that transparency and want regulation to support the markets. Now, I wouldn't want to see all the volatility to go out of the market, right, because that's what people want to trade. And speaking of regulation, China, why it's clamping down on tech giants and what the future is for innovators in the world's second largest economy. Plus, a behind-the-scenes look at Tesla's most challenging times and Elon Musk's pursuit of efficiency at any cost. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine, plus global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hey there, I'm Paul Sweeney, in for Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovic. 
Plenty ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including a crypto asset manager that's embracing regulation. Simbridge CEO Michael McGuire says he's targeting a new class of investors in the volatile digital asset space. Plus, we're talking to Tim Higgins. He's going to discuss his book, Power Play, Tesla, Elon Musk and the bet of the century. It just came out and it's a rare peek behind the curtain at the world's foremost electric vehicle maker. It's hard to imagine now or think back to now, but. Paul, just a few years ago, this company was on the brink of running out of money. It is, and what a turnaround it's been. And we'll explore what is going on in China. After 40 years of allowing the market to play an expanding role in driving prosperity, Xi Jinping is leading a smackdown on capitalism and sparking a $1 trillion reckoning. First up this hour, we're going to take you inside the pages of Bloomberg Business Week, the magazine. There is a new sheriff on Wall Street, and his name is Gary Gensler. He's a chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, and he's taking a hard look and turning his aim towards the crypto space. And in a video posted on Twitter, SEC Chair Gary Gensler, he does tell investors in cryptocurrencies to be careful what they invest in. Let's take a lesson. To those currently or considering investing in crypto, please remember, not only are they a highly speculative asset class, but they're also significant gaps in the investor protection afforded to you. That was SEC Chair Gary Gensler, and we have a Bloomberg story uh, on Mr. Gensler looking at crypto. Let's bring in Pat Regnier. He's markets and finance editor for Bloomberg Business Week. And Ben Bain, financial regulations reporter for Bloomberg News. Pat, fascinating story here. What are you and Ben taking away from some initial remarks by Mr. Gensler about how he's going to take a look in potentially regulating crypto? I mean, it looks to us like he's laying down sort of a blueprint of what is actually going to be regulated. Uh, you know, uh, Ben and Rob Schmidt in reporting this, one of the things that was a big theme of their conversation is just exactly what does uh, the SEC regulate? What's in its purview? What's in others regulators purview? And what uh, sort of so far hasn't been established is regulated at all. And and um, Ben, I think you can speak to this. It looks like he's really trying to expand the reach of his uh, his agency. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think the the big takeaway is that he thinks that there is a clear test out there already for whether something is a security and it, it works for a cryptocurrency the same way it works for whether something is a stock or an investment contract. But he thinks that this new technology the blockchain and everything that goes along with it does raise some new issues. And he pointed to some specific gaps. He mentioned specifically trading platforms. He asked, he says he's asked Congress to maybe grant some new authorities to the SEC or some other uh, federal agency that would allow them to really focus on these crypto exchanges because they're not like anything that's really ever uh, been around before um, in the sense that you have some of them, which are basically people lending crypto back and forth to each other and others them which which look a lot more like a classic exchange. So he's definitely got, as, as Pat said, he's kind of laid the blueprint for what's a pretty comprehensive uh, framework, I think. Ben, what exactly does Gensler think about cryptocurrencies? Because as you and Robert Schmidt write, this is a guy who actually had 29 hours of a blockchain and money course that he developed at, <laughs> at MIT. I mean, <laughs> what exactly does he think of crypto? I think what we took away from the conversation was that he's of two minds. One is that when it comes to the technology, he's fascinated by it. He's interested in it. He, he says I, something to the effect of he leaned into it when he was teaching courses in it for three years, which, by the way, have gotten millions of views online, these courses he gave on the, the subject. That's 
one area. On the other hand, he really kept coming back to the idea that now as chair of the SEC, he's focused on protecting investors. And he referred to this space as the Wild West. He doesn't think that there really is the sufficient level of protection that people need. And he said he's going to level everything that the SEC has to get it there. So um, he's already got at least seven different areas or initiatives kind of underway, looking at everything from some of these initial coin offerings to how to handle custody to a Bitcoin ETF potentially eventually. The SEC is kind of already churning and trying to kind of put something together that he thinks is going to fill the gaps that are existed. You know, one thing that was really striking to me in this story is that uh, a lot of people have been very in the crypto industry have been very excited uh, about him being at the SEC because he knows so much about it. And I think the presumption from some people has been, oh, you know, because we understand uh, their thinking is that because we understand that being unregulated is core to this. If someone else understands what we're doing, he's going to have light touch regulation. And I think, you know, bless your heart for thinking that if somebody <laughs> understands your industry very well, they're not going to want to regulate it. Yeah. And Ben, you know, one of the issues that you point out, and it, it's just a, a vexing one, is kind of, you know, who does regulate what? It feels like it might be kind of a regulatory kind of land grab here between the SEC, the CFTC, and whatever new groups Congress may create. Does Gensler feel like the SEC is the proper and primary regulatory body? He didn't go that far to say that the SEC should have say over it all. But what he did say is that when you look across the crypto universe right now, and taking Bitcoin out of that, there's all of these tokens that exist in the world. And a, a, a majority of those, in his eyes, are securities. And because they're securities, that means that they fall under the SEC's remit. And that means that if they're out there and not registering and not trading with the SEC's rules, then they're potentially in violation um, of those rules. And what's really gonna we're gonna see now is, is how he's gonna deal with that. That was Bloomberg Businessweek Markets and Finance editor Pat Regnier with Bloomberg News Financial Regulations reporter Ben Bain. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. Coming up, you just heard about the SEC's plans to take a tougher look at crypto assets, and we found a company all for the increased scrutiny. Simbridge CEO Michael McGuire on the other side. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec and Paul Sweeney from Bloomberg Radio. So a new push by Congress uh, could require crypto brokers to report transactions to the IRS. It could create some unwelcome tax bills, but could also clarify rules for traders and users of Bitcoin and other digital tokens, potentially strengthening the system in the long run. That's according to people in the industry. The idea is in a last minute addition to the $550 billion bipartisan infrastructure package. And the hope is that it's going to raise uh, more than uh, raise uh, 20, some $28 billion too help pay for the bill. Joining us now is Michael McGuire, founder and CEO of Simbridge. It's the first U.S.-based regulated digital asset exchange designed specifically with an institutional focus using blockchain native technology. It is certainly a mouthful. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. It's good to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. And yeah, that was definitely a mouthful. <laughs> so this is an industry that I think is still so unfamiliar to so many people. So in layperson's terms, explain what Simbridge does. 
Sure. Simbridge is a digital exchange that uses blockchain to create transparency for uh, transactions on the exchange. And what that does is it makes it easier for regulators to understand if there's been market manipulation going on. And as you know, in the securities industry, there's a lot of rules about market manipulation. Um, and in the crypto world, those rules haven't really matured yet. So some of your better exchanges uh, adopt you know, sort of a self-policing approach and other exchanges don't. Yeah, Michael, I think that's it's a great topic here because I think a lot of investors view uh, crypto trading just broadly defined as kind of the Wild West, if you will, very early days. And how do you think this is going to evolve? Is this something that the Securities and Exchange Commission, for example, uh, might take a look at? Uh, how do you think this might evolve? Sure. There is a lot of volatility uh, in the marketplace. You know, the SEC and CFTC had come out and said Bitcoin's a commodity, right? So okay. it should be regulated a commodity. SEC founded in 1929 to regulate securities. I don't think that's their jurisdiction. And unless you're trading on margin or trading a future or an option, the CFTC doesn't regulate spot transactions, which many of the tr exchange transactions are. So, you know, I would put out there that maybe there's a need for an agency that's going to focus solely on crypto. The other f side of that coin would be you need some regulatory structure here to attract capital, make this, quote unquote, a real asset class. How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, we're all, all for regulation and transparency. We want to improve on the way things are done. Uh, so I think that's, you know, that is needed. And that's why we've decided or, you know, we decided to set up in the U.S. in one of the strictest regulatory environments in the world and focus on accredited investors and institutional investors that demand that transparency and want regulation to support the markets. Now, I wouldn't want to see all the volatility to go out of the market, right? Because that's what people want to trade. Give us an idea for the way that demand has, has shifted or demand has changed for, for Simbridge in, in recent months. Um, if we think back to where uh, Bitcoin was trading, you know, in March of, of 2020, right? Uh, just a few thousand dollars for a Bitcoin. As the price has gone up, talk to me about the way that demand for services like yours has shifted. Sure. I think, you know, if you think about one year ago, we wouldn't be having this call, right? We're having this call because large players in the industry, Fidelity, Goldman, JP Morgan, are offering, um, you know, crypto assets to their high net worth clients. And so, you know, that's why, you know, that's why it's popular. And that's why we're having this conversation, I think. Michael, you know, one of the things as we talk to investors, I think they're looking for a more validation of the crypto space. And, you know, yes, Elon Musk and, and putting crypto on the balance sheet of Tesla was a validating event, arguably uh, accepting Bitcoin as payment for a, a Tesla. What do you think or, you know, do you think there need to be more validation of events to to really make this a widespread, widely held asset class? If so, what do you think needs to happen? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, thanks. So if you look at the recent Fidelity report that came out of a survey of a bunch of institutional investors, seven out of 10 of them are, are looking to add crypto to their portfolio. So when you see like a constant drumbeat of big institutions coming out with information like that, or JPM offering crypto assets or Bitcoin type of investments to their high net worth individuals. I think that in itself is validating, right? These are incumbent players on Wall Street, the sort of name brands of the industry that are saying, you know, you should really be looking at having some type of allocation to this type of asset, but in a, in a measurable way, right? What does that allocation do, though? Is it is it indeed a replacement 
for gold, as some bulls have, have said? Is it something that it doesn't seem like it, it, it diversifies in a, in a way that, as we saw in the sell-off last year, I mean, you, were, you weren't safe anywhere. Uh, Bitcoin tumbled there in March of 2020. But what is the purpose that it, that it gives investors in a portfolio? Yeah, I think it is diversification and it is, you know, some people argue that it's, um, you know, non-inflationary and people are worried about inflation or investing in, in Bitcoin or, or gold. Um, Simbridge is going to be launching uh, tokens that are backed by different physical commodities, specifically metals. So you'll be able to take a directional view on, for instance, ESG or electric batteries, right? You could buy uh, tokens that are backed by the, the individual metal components like cobalt, nickel, um, in the in the EV space or, or palladium and platinum in the combustion engine catalytic converter space. So mm. it gives you a way to express a view that doesn't already exist for a lot of investors, right? Your your hedge funds can already do that, but for, you know, an accredited investor, it's a little more difficult. Michael, do you have a sensor? I'm sure you do. Kind of where institutional investors, professional investors, mutual funds, hedge funds, how are they trading in the crypto space or what are they trading? Is it just Ethereum? Is it just Bitcoin? How are, they, how are they trading? What are they trading? Yeah, I think 70% Bitcoin, 30% Ether. Um, there's not a whole lot more dive down into, you know, the the cap list of, of crypto. And, and they're not trading so much. I mean, uh, most of them are buy holds. Okay. People are putting stuff on their balance sheet. They're holding it. Um, but you do have some prop desks who are trading it. Is it the type of thing that it belongs in a 401k? Um. There are Good services. Question. There are small providers now of 401ks that are that are offering this. Yeah, good question. I would say, you know, if you're an accredited investor or above, you probably should have some of this in your 401k. Meaning you have if a liquid net worth of a million dollars. Liquid and, network and, or, you know, make over $200,000 a year in salary or 300 combined or a million dollar net worth without your house, then yeah, you definitely should have some of this in 401k. But you need to understand that it is volatile. Um, but it would be a good exposure, in my opinion. That's Michael McGuire, the CEO of SimBridge. It's a digital asset exchange that's designed specifically for institutional investors and traders. Still to come on Bloomberg Business Week, the Chinese government is reining in its country's biggest tech firms and sacrificing billions of dollars in profits for the sake of control. Our resident China expert and Bloomberg New Economy editorial director Andy Brown tries to help us make sense of the crackdown. Plus, how Tesla managed to escape its most challenging crisis to date. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevac and Paul Sweeney from Bloomberg Radio. Well, you know, you think about some of these big Chinese companies that have raised capital in the U.S. over the last several years. And I think about Alibaba. That's a company I know very well, followed it since its beginning. But there's, of course, a whole slew of uh, these big Chinese companies. And it's been a play on the growth of China. And they've been so uh, successful over here. But in the back of everyone's mind, there's this thing called China risk. At any given time, uh, the government of China could put the kibosh on the whole thing. And uh, I think we're starting to see a little bit of that. Andy Brown, he's editorial director uh, for the Bloomberg New Economy that focuses 
exclusively on China and Asia. Talk to us about what you're seeing in China. The government's cracking down, and it's not just Alibaba, it's not just Didi, it's educational sectors. I just don't know what's next. What do you think the government's up to? You know, you you, you talk about risk, um, and it's true. This is now political risk. And investors are going to have to get their heads around that. Look, we've seen it in before. You know, we've seen this before with the government trying to put the kibosh on particular abuses within industries. So they did this with the gaming industry a couple of years ago when they figured out that kids in China were spending way too much time playing online games. Um, but this is something very different in terms of scale, its scope, intensity severity. We have never seen anything like this before. This isn't just the government correcting abuses. This is the government saying, we have a new system of economic management here, and it's driven by a political process. And this political process is reflective of our shifting priorities. We are concerned about social welfare. We're concerned about workers. We're concerned about inequality. And you guys, the private sector, need to work with us on all these issues. Get with the program or get out of the way. What is the ultimate outcome of this, though, Andy? I mean, is it is are those something are those things that the the Chinese government can actually accomplish? Yeah. So they have a legitimate they have a legitimate point that in almost every case where they've taken action against Chinese tech companies, there's some kind of abuse going on. So, you know, who can deny that China's data platforms are abusing their monopoly positions and squeezing out smaller competitors? And, you know, regulators in the United States wish that they might have powers more akin to Chinese regulators um, so that they could put an end to all these abuses. Um, you know, the, 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 the issue, though, is, 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 is how you go about doing this and, and closing down an entire industry, as they just did with online education, um, you know, is, is, telling, is telling investors, you've got to now, you have to now assume with a, a whole new level of risk. And the question they face, the, the, the big question now is, are Chinese stocks investable or not? Clearly, in the education space, the answer is no. And, and the, the, the jury is out on, you know, on many other Chinese industries which face similar so-called rectification. Yeah, it's Andy, you know, we, we've heard from a lot of emerging market fund managers who are saying basically, yeah, the game has changed, but the reality is I can't not invest in China. It's such a big part of the various indices uh, that my bench that I'm benchmarked against, and it is historically been such a big part of the market. I have to be there, but I'm thinking that, okay, but I'm not going to pay anywhere near the multiples I paid before this. Is the Chinese government, did they run the risk of kind of overstepping? Yeah, they do. And so, you know, if, if you're going to go into the Chinese market now as a portfolio investor, you need to be aware that it isn't the market that is shaping the outcomes of the companies that you're investing in. Increasingly, it is the government. And the government is shaping it according to political priorities. They're the ones pulling the levers. They're the ones turning the dials. Now, if you, if you, if you can get used to that, and if you, can, if you think that you understand where the political priorities of the government lie, then good luck. So what does it mean for individuals who want to invest in China? Should they just think about this in the context of, okay, well, there's going to be a discount 
on me buying ADRs of, of Chinese stocks? Or is this, should they have to be prepared for the worst to happen, that their equity uh, state could actually go to zero? Yeah, you know, if if you look, so what what are, what are the what are the smart investors in 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 China up to? Um, you know, I was reading a speech over the weekend that was made recently by really one of the best and most successful venture capitalists in China called Eric Lee, and he said, you know, um, I've been reading copies of Chu Shu. Chu is a, is the leading theoretical magazine of the Chinese Communist Party, and it's where you find all of Xi Jinping's speeches. And essentially, he's saying, I have found my investment thesis. Um, in in the thoughts of President Xi Jinping, and you should too. That's Bloomberg New Economy Editorial Director Andy Brown. He came to us from New York City. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, drama inside Tesla and how the company managed to stave off an early demise. Wall Street Journal reporter Tim Higgins on his new book, Power Play, Tesla, Elon Musk, and the Bet of a Century. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovac and Paul Sweeney from Bloomberg Radio. There's probably no company out there more polarizing than Tesla. A new book that just came out aims to tell the story of the company, from how it started nearly 20 years ago to almost failing to becoming by far the most valuable car company in the world. Joining us now is Tim Higgins, a Wall Street Journal reporter, also the author of Power Play, Tesla, Elon Musk, and the Bet of the Century. Tim, uh, I listened to some other interviews that you've done, and, and I heard you say that when you started writing this book, you thought you were writing the obituary for the company. So what, what was the turning point when it went from being an obituary to, to this book? Yeah, you have to remember in 2018, it was pretty bleak, uh, right? Elon Musk seemed to be having a meltdown on Twitter every other day. Uh, the company was you know, short on cash, as you said, and it just seemed uh, improbable that uh, they could keep the, keep the story going. But uh, one of the big turning points was uh, the third after the third quarter in 2018 when Elon Musk and Tesla surprised the world uh, and came out uh, with a profitable quarter uh, because, in large part, because they were able to get the Model 3 compact car into customers' hands, paying customers' hands. It was uh, First, it was manufacturing hell to make the car, and then it was delivery hell to get it into those customers' uh, driveways. It, it, they weren't out of the woods then, but it was a moment that gave new hope uh, 2019 continued to be problematic, but really it was clear that things had changed for Tesla in 2020 uh, during uh, the pandemic when they continued to uh, build cars uh, despite great challenges, deliver those cars and turn profit and deliver, uh, create the ability to raise a lot of money very cheaply by issuing new shares that gives them a war chest uh, to go forward. Tim, th- I'd be fascinating to learn what kind of access did you get uh, to the folks at uh, Tesla? Because when we think of Tesla, we think of just Elon Musk. And but obviously, there's more to the story than that. It'd be fascinating to kind of get some thoughts from you about the access you had. Absolutely, that's a question everybody wants to know who I talked to. And uh, it's clear this book was not endorsed by Elon Musk. Uh, he <laughs> probably would not like you to read it. Uh, Tesla is not cooperative. Um, but the book that I started out to write really was to kind of get at one of the questions or this idea. There's a myth that uh, Tesla's success is because Elon Musk was sleeping on the factory floor and, and kind of willing it into existence. Without a doubt, there wouldn't be a Tesla without Elon, but there also wouldn't be a Tesla without the army of men and women who behind the scenes uh, sacrificed a lot over the years to develop these cars, to sell them, 
and to really put the car on the on the map. So it was, you know, shoe leather reporting, uh, sourcing, uh, you know, hundreds of interviews, thousands of records to tease out those important anecdotes that really say what the company was doing, uh, why they're making the decisions good and bad and, and you know, what were the ramifications of those is is tesla you've covered autos for years in detroit and, and also in in san francisco do you think that tesla is a car company it likes to call itself an energy company right it likes to call itself an energy company but they're making their money um from the, the sale of cars and selling uh credits energy credit uh, regulatory credits uh, to other competitors who are not as successful at selling those electric cars right so they are a car company at this point they have ambitions of becoming more but uh, we are talking about them because they have done something in the auto industry that seemed improbable in 2003 when they were founded and now has made them uh, the world's most valuable automaker. And that is you know, essentially win the day on the argument that the future of the car is electric. You see General Motors, you see Mercedes, you see Volkswagen all spending billions and billions of dollars and racing to that future. Is Elon Musk as eccentric as he seems Absolutely. Um, absolutely. On one hand, he's incredibly charming. Uh, he's funny. He is interesting in a way that you do just not normally come across. Uh, on the other hand, he is exacting and demanding and a self-described nanomanager. Um, you do not want to cross him. Uh, he is a person who will not hold back. Um, if he is unhappy, you will definitely uh, know about it. Um, and these are the challenges of working for him, uh, uh, talking to people who have had that experience, it's, it's interesting because there are some who feel like it was an opportunity of a lifetime. And then there are others who felt like maybe they flew a little too close to the sun. Uh, it was, uh, you know, a painful experience. Um, but, you know, it is definitely yeah. a, a unique experience. Tim, I, I got to go there. I got to ask about this Twitter dust up last week after our own <laughs> Bloomberg News reporter, Mark Gurman, uh, tweeted a uh, part of a screenshot from a Daily Mail article. They got a copy of your book and and their story was about how Elon Musk once demanded be made the CEO of Tesla during discussions of a potential buyout. And Apple CEO Tim Cook had called Musk to propose acquiring the electric car maker. Musk expressed his interest in the idea, but he had one condition. This is according to the Daily Mail's write up of your book telling Cook, I'm CEO. Uh, in response to that, Elon Musk said that uh, you managed to write a book that was not only false. He said, Cook and I have never spoken or written to each other. There was a point where I requested to meet with Cook to talk about Apple buying Tesla. There were no conditions of acquisition proposed whatsoever. Uh, and he also said Higgins managed to write a book, both false and boring. And he included two emojis in there. So to your point about him not not wanting others to, to read his book, um, what would you say to Musk's response to this? Yeah, absolutely. So as detailed in the book, uh, this story of this conversation is what Musk was telling members of his team. And I have talked to uh, sources uh, individually and heard this uh, from multiple people. Um, so either Musk was telling the truth then when he uh, told this tale, or he's telling the truth now. And in the book, I include uh, a line about how Tim Cook has even said that he has never spoken with Musk and include some skepticism about the veracity of what Musk was claiming. But the, whether uh, such a conversation took place is, is beside the point. What the message, the clear message that Elon was giving to his team was that Elon Musk was the CEO of Tesla, and that if they were hoping for some white 
night savior to come in to fix their problems like Apple, that wasn't going to happen. They needed mm-hmm. to figure out yep. the problems that were going on. And at that period of time, Tesla was in trouble. This is a period around the, when the Model X is coming out. In 2016, uh, production is a mess, uh, cash is being burnt through, and the stock is falling. It's so hard to you know, kind of remember, think back to those days, Tim, because Boy, you think Tesla now, it's got a $700 billion market cap, stocks up 140% over the trailing 12 months. How close do you think uh, did they get in, I don't know, call it 2016, 2017, to to really going out of business? Well, 2018 was pretty bleak. Um, I have seen internal uh, figures. They were were on the line there. They They were running that cash down. And it's a story of Tesla going back to the early days, though. The cash has always been their big issue. Uh, bending metal, getting cars out, takes a lot of capital. And this is part of the reason why there hasn't been, up until that point, it really an automotive startup in, in many, many generations because most uh, VCs weren't interested in putting money down uh, to the, on the idea of a car company that maybe uh, 10 years later might have a product. Uh, that's what was so unique about Elon Musk was here was a really rich person who had this like belief that electric cars could possibly happen, and he put his fortune behind it. And then on top of that, he was able to convince other investors to continue to put more and more money in the company over the years. I mean, it's been billions of dollars it's taken to get to the company where it is now. And, uh, you know, that that's what separates Tesla from uh, other startups that dream big but you know, can't uh, can't execute. Are Tesla's most challenging days behind it? I would say that Tesla, after 2020 and the ability to raise all that cash, uh, at that point was probably a never had never had as good good a footing as it was at that point because of the, having that cash answered that problem. Now it's the question of what are they going to do? Can they execute on building those new two two new assembly plants in Germany, one in Texas? Can they bring out the Cybertruck? Can they continue to get battery costs down? Uh, get down to a level that uh, they can make these cars so every day people can buy them because that's what their mission is. That's what Elon Musk's stated mission is to make uh, electric vehicles uh, ubiquitous, if you will. Uh, he wants to make that conversion uh, around the world. And if he's going to do that, then they have to be way cheaper. Hey, Tim, just in the last six to 12 months, we've seen the major automakers around the world really jump in big time uh, into the EV market. I'm thinking Volkswagen, General Motors, Ford. It seems like everybody's got an announcement and some new product launches. How do you think Elon Musk and the folks at Tesla view you know, the competitive environment over the next five years? Well, it's interesting because early on, this was actually the dream was to kind of edge or push the auto industry into getting into EVs. That was kind of what they were hoping, to show that uh, an electric car was feasible and that people, everyday people, would want to buy it, right? So in a lot of ways, if Tesla were to disappear tomorrow, the kind of the initial mission of the company has been accomplished. Uh, that said, it's clear that Elon Musk has uh, you know, more ambitions uh, out there and clear that he wants to have a, a lot more sales. And one of those challenges he's going to have in coming years, there's going to be so much more competition. That's Tim Higgins. He's a Wall Street Journal reporter and his book out now. It's called Power Play, Tesla, Elon Musk and the Bet of the Century. A rare look at some fraught moments inside the EV giant and how it has ultimately become a global powerhouse. But Paul, um, 
perhaps its toughest days behind it, but it's still got a long way to go to stave off all that competition. There's there's new competition coming from the likes of General Motors, Ford, Volkswagen, and others. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for joining us. I'm Paul Sweeney, in for Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenevec. Be sure to tune into our Bloomberg Business Week daily show. It's Monday through Friday. It starts at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also watch the daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. Also, check out our Bloomberg Business Week podcast. You can find it at Bloomberg.com, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bloomberg Business Week is available on newsstands now at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. And you can also see me at Bloomberg Quick Take. It's available at Bloomberg. Bloomberg.com slash QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. Have a great weekend. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.